Hey, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 19. And as you're turning there, can I ask you guys a question? Have you heard of the phenomena that is known as distracted driving? Let's see a show of hands. How many of you actually participated in distracted driving last week? And those of you who didn't raise your hands, you know it's not good to lie in church. <laughs> well, distracted driving is a real phenomenon. According to the National Traffic uh, Safety Board, uh, distracted driving is defined as doing anything when you're behind the wheel that distracts us, that diverts our attention from the task at hand. Uh, that includes talking. Uh, maybe you've seen some people that get into an animate uh, conversation with each other and they're just staring at each other while they're driving along. Uh, that can be... I, I've seen people uh, just this week alone driving along and shaving while they're driving, putting on makeup, doing the eyebrows, you know, while I, I don't know how you could possibly be paying attention to what's going on and doing that. But the number one source of distracted driving, according to the National uh, Traffic Safety Board, is texting while driving. How many of you attempted to text while driving this last week? Well, we do it, and we think we're going to get away with it, and we just think, oh, it'll just take a second. But a second's distraction can end up completely changing, not just your life but the lives of those that you're sharing the road with. Again, uh, an amazing statistic from 2019. In that year alone, 3,142 Americans died in distracted driving accidents. Well, there's no doubt about the fact that distraction can be deadly on a physical highway. But did you ever stop to think how deadly distraction can be on your spiritual highway? Uh, consider a heavenly heads up that we receive from Jesus about one of the great dangers that will come across the path of God's people in the last days. In Luke chapter 21 and verse 34, Jesus said this, But take heed to yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Now, notice what Jesus warns us about. He said the number one spiritual danger that we are going to face is not necessarily, say, uh, Satan showing up looking like a refugee from another wood deviled ham can saying, I'm going to get you. No, the thing that gets us more than anything else is distraction. Focusing in on any other person, place, or thing than our relationship with God on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Well, how can we keep our eyes on the road spiritually. Well, this morning in Luke chapter 19, Jesus is going to share a parable, a word picture that I believe is not just one of the most controversial parables that Jesus ever shared, but one of the most constructive parables, if properly received, you and I will ever encounter in our walk with God. 
In a study this morning we could call taking care of business, we're going to see just how important it is that we have our eyes on the road spiritually. The Lord's going to show us not just those things that can distract us, but we're also going to see his prescription that he is going to give to us. The ability to be able to put first things first, the ability to make sure that we are really not just spending our lives or wasting our lives, but even more importantly, how to invest our lives in a way that is really going to accrue to us a heavenly return. We pick things up in Luke chapter 19 and verse 11. There we read this. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Now, context is always key in our understanding of any passage of God's word. You want to get spiritually lost, you want to be cult bait, uh, get into the habit of just uh, slicing, dicing, and uh, stapling together individual snippets that we find in the Word of God. And never ask yourself the question, what's going on here? You know, what is the setting? What is happening that causes these words to be so significant? And this is a great example. Uh, whenever you see in the Scripture the word now, you should ask the question, when? Well, uh, the when in the now of verse 11 is Jesus was near Jerusalem. Not just near Jerusalem, but he was drawing near to Jerusalem. Catch this, for the last time in his earthly ministry. The shadow of the cross is looming larger and larger on the horizon. We saw earlier in the book of Luke, Jesus' ministry in a city called Jericho, which is down near the Jordan River, it is on one of the main pilgrim highways that people used to use going from northern Israel to Jerusalem for feasts like the Passover, which was about to take place. So, you know, it was a bustling situation. It was a situation where Jesus had been blowing people's minds with amazing miracles and reaching the most unlikely people you could ever imagine. Now, if you were following along with Jesus, and you know that the Passover, right, the Passover the celebration of God's great deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery and bondage in Egypt was rising high on the horizon. To add to this, you've got Jesus showing up. Jesus, as they say, was the hottest ticket in town. He was doing unprecedented miracles, signs and wonders, teaching like no one had ever taught before. Could he be the promised Messiah. That's what was on the hearts and minds, not just of the crowds, but certainly that was first and foremost in the hearts and minds of his disciples at this point. They were waiting for him to reveal his glory. Shoot, three of them, Peter, James, and John, had already seen his glory as he revealed it on Mount Hermon. I'm sure in their hearts and their minds are like, oh, man, this is going to be awesome. Sure, you know, healing uh, paralyzed people, raising the dead. That's all well and good. But, man, I want to tell you something. We saw him in his glory. And when he gets to Jerusalem and he pulls back the curtain on reality and those Romans see his face shining like the sun in his countenance, things are going to change, man. Uh, we are no longer going to be the oppressed those Romans are going to get kicked out. Israel's going to be number one. Paradise on earth awaits. That was their mindset. 
And, and you really couldn't blame them from knee high to a grasshopper. They had been taught that that was what Messiah would come to do. But Jesus wanted to correct that misconception. Notice it says he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Yeah, the kingdom of God is coming. All of those Old Testament promises. For instance, in Psalm 2, that Messiah would rule and reign over the nations with a rod of iron. That the nations would literally come and bow at his feet. And that there would be the universal reign of peace and a restored paradise on earth. All of those things, God's word promises. But what Jesus was trying to illustrate was something that sometimes he illustrates in our lives, in our circumstances. Two toughest words sometimes we ever encounter in our walk with God. Not yet. Not yet. God's timing and our timing are very, very different things. And so Jesus tells them this parable. And what a fascinating parable it is. Verse 12, Therefore he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and a return. So he called ten of his servants and delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man reign over us. Now, when I said that this was one of the most controversial parables Jesus ever taught, I'm not just whistling Dixie here, because this account that Jesus is relating here was something that those who were in his listening audience would go, whoa, wait a minute. Jesus is using a very secular event that we are all aware of seemingly to illustrate a spiritual point. And that had to be very confusing because this secular event, boy, you want to talk about the separation of church and mind, I mean, separation of church and state. This was a flaming example of this. You see, what Jesus was referring to, and those who were listening to would immediately pick up on it, was an actual historical event and it happened, well, roughly about 13 years prior to the events we see described in the book of Luke today. As you recall, uh, Jesus' uh, birth involved uh, a, a very interesting political character. His name was Herod the Great. If you've ever gone on a trip to Israel with us, you know that this man, Herod the Great, literally left his, his imprint across the promised land. We still see it today. Incredible architect, incredible administrator. Uh, one major flaw in Herod's character, obviously, was he was uh, paranoid. He was bloodthirsty. Uh, one Roman senator said that you were safer being Herod's pig than you were being one of his sons because he would oftentimes just execute even members of his own family if he thought they were plotting against him. He even killed his most beloved wife, a woman by the name of Mary Amney. And after killing her for being suspicious that she was trying to seize his power, he spent a good portion of his life building tributes and monuments to her. Boy, this guy was bad news. And if you're familiar with the Christmas story, you know how he dealt with the idea that Messiah, who would potentially be a threat 
to his power would, uh, would come on the scene. And, and how he dealt with that by killing all of the uh, children two years of age and under in the area around Bethlehem. This guy was brutal. And so when he dies, right, he died and uh, quite frankly, all the people in his particular area breathed a sigh of relief. In fact, Herod gave orders that on the word of his death, the most beloved people in Jerusalem would be rounded up and executed so that there would be mourning in Jerusalem on the day of his death because he knew no one would mourn for him. That's how brutal this guy was. Well, his son, Archelaus, was left in Herod's will as his chosen successor. There was only one problem. He had to get Rome's okay, their thumbs up, to take over for his old man. And so he left his territory there in the promised land and went on a journey to Rome to get Caesar Augustus to say, you're the guy. Well, Caesar Augustus gave him the thumbs up partially. He gave him half the territory that his father, Herod the Great, controlled. But you better believe the people of Israel were not thrilled about having another Herod running their affairs. And so they sent a delegate from the Jewish delegation from the Jewish Sanhedrin, rough equivalent of their United States Senate, to go and argue against the idea of Archelaus being given this power. Now, the reason I'm giving you this history lesson is because Jesus paints this picture of an event that everybody in his listening audience would understand. He's talking about Archelaus here. He's talking about this guy, Herod's uh, chip off the old block, the guy who's running half the... And by the way, Archelaus was kind of Herod without any finesse, believe it or not. He was such a rotten uh, uh, ruler that he only lasted about four years in power, and he was deposed by the Romans. So, you know, they're going, whoa, wait a minute. The, the kingdom of God, and you're painting this picture of Archelaus? Don't you think you're getting a little political here, Jesus? You know, we don't come to hear you talk about politics, Jesus, especially Roman politics. We come to hear about the kingdom of God, right? Well, apparently, Jesus didn't get the memo because Jesus is talking politics here. And Jesus is using a very tangible, very historical, very political incident to illustrate a spiritual truth. Now, the reason I point this out to you is this. In this day and age, I'll tell you, there's two equal and opposite errors that I see the people of God making in regards to how we deal with things political. The first error that I think people make and I see it happen quite a bit, is that we think that we can bring the kingdom of God into power through political action. That we can somehow, by getting the right people in office or passing the right kind of legislation, that somehow we can help God out and get the kingdom of God going. And there are all kinds of politicians out there particularly politicians on the right and some on the left, that will try to court your vote by using that very uh, kind of mentality. And, you know, it's a real mistake. Why? Because God's kingdom in this world will never be brought in by a majority vote. 
The kingdom of God, we are told, is within you. It's spiritual. It's not political. And if anybody tries to say, if you support our particular political party or you support this particular candidate, maybe even a candidate who can sling the spiritual hash and talk the God talk, that you're bringing in the kingdom of God, you're making a huge mistake. And inevitably, you will end up radically disappointed. Understand something. There are those who think that politicians and political platforms are the answer. The Bible has a very bracing piece of insight for you this morning, if you fall in that direction. Psalm 118 and verse 8 says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. You know, let's face it, we get shocked because, uh, you know, we vote for these politicians, and then when they get in office, they behave like politicians. We go, what happened? Well, you know, uh, again, uh, you can uh, pretty much understand something. The way our system is set up, it is selected to essentially weed out individuals that seem to have any kind of spiritual convictions. I'm not saying that you shouldn't vote. I'm not saying that good people can't get involved and be involved with political uh, movements and so forth. But if that's where you're pinning your hopes, you're barking up the wrong tree. People always ask me this question, Scott, are you a Republican or a Democrat? Well, I tell people, I'm a monarchist. And they look at me funny and they go, what? A monarchist? And I said, yeah, I serve a great king. But my king isn't king in this world quite yet. He's going to be, though. I'm his ambassador. I'm his representative. In Philippians chapter 3, we are told that our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await a Savior. And so that's the position that I take politically. I don't try to put my hopes in either political party, because inevitably it will let you down. And when politicians, not if, but when politicians let us down, here's where the real spiritual danger comes in. Understand something. We don't want to ignore what's happening politically. In fact, we need to be issues-oriented voters as far as our Christian convictions are concerned. I think there are two non-negotiable issues that every born-again believer in Jesus should take with them into the voting booth every time they vote. Number one is the individual that we are considering supporting pro-life. If you are not pro-life, I cannot support you politically. If you will not stand up for the most helpless in our society, the pre-born, I cannot use the franchise of voting that God has given to me, being born into this particular setting and circumstance, given the right to vote, I cannot vote for anyone who will stand for the wholesale slaughter of innocent infants. I cannot stand for that, and I hope you can't either. It's a political and spiritual non-negotiable for me. The second is, do they stand with God's people, Israel? Do they stand with Israel? Are they a stalwart supporter, not just of Israel's right to exist, but to defend the welfare of their own people in probably one of the most difficult neighborhoods to live in in the entire world. 
that's really where I leave it. The rest of it, you know, I, I've got my own ideas about, say, economics and taxation and the size of government and things like this. But those things are all negotiable. Those, are, those first two are non-negotiables to me. And that controls the way I vote. And I hope it will influence the way you decide to vote. The sad thing is, even in evangelical Bible-believing churches, we see time after time after time, people will bring their Bibles with them into church, but their biblical convictions never follow them into the voting booth. That should never be, right? But having said that, understand something. We shouldn't ignore the political. Jesus didn't ignore the political, right? But on the other side of the coin, we need to understand something. If you look to the political as the answer, you're setting yourself up for a big fall. And, and I will confess to you, uh, this is an area that I really struggle with personally. Uh, when I see how politics goes down in our day and age, and, and, you know, again, doing a program like A Reason for Hope, where we answer people's questions biblically, I have to stay on top of these things. I think uh, we need to be aware of the signs of the times how the events that Jesus predicted would lead up to his return are coming onto the world stage. And to me, that's, that's very heartening. But there's a real danger there that I have fallen into more than once. I look at how politics, as usual, goes down in this day and age. And, man, I'll tell you what. You know, I fire up the Internet in the morning, and I start looking at these stories, and I see, you know, what the elected officials are saying and the decisions that they're making and, and all this stuff. And uh, there's the comments, right? There's the comments on these stories, the, 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 the talk back areas there. And people will start making little snarky remarks uh, about these politicians and the dumb things they say and the dumb things that they do and, and all this. And there is a part of me, man, I'll tell you what, I'm a man of sarcastic lips from a people of sarcastic lips. And man, my, my gift of sarcasm gets going. And, you know, uh, I used to kind of feel pretty good about that until the Lord laid something on my heart. He brought me back to a famous passage of Scripture. Maybe you've heard this before, maybe even memorized it at one time in your life. Psalm 1. It says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Okay, great. I don't want to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Got that one under my belt. Nor stands in the path of sinners. Oh, man, I don't want to find myself standing there and being associated with people in rebellion against God for sure nor sits in the seat of the scornful. You catch that last word? Scornful. Looking down on other people. Having that little snarky remark, that little dig, that little jab right there at the forefront and feeling good because I put my two cents worth in on this talk back thing about how out to lunch and how stupid and how silly all of these people are. And, 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 and kind of a reverse sort of thing, I'm saying, yeah, you know, I'm not stupid. I'm not silly. I'm not investing in these things that, that don't honor God. And boy, I'm going to jab away at these people. And I realized something. The more I did that, the more I found myself getting comfortable sitting in the seat of the scornful. Man, I'm comfy there, aren't you? 
Man, I, I, it's like I've got the Barca lounger of the scornful going on in my life. You know, a little cup holder there, and I can sit there, and it's very comfortable. It's very normal and natural for me. Maybe it is for you. You know, the Bible says that's not where we need to be. And, and I just want to share with you, and you can pray for me about this because it's, it's a constant battle within my life. I get so easily sucked into this sort of thing. But in Psalm 33, or I should say Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34, we are told the Lord scorns the scornful, but he gives grace to the humble. Which one of those two categories do you want to be? Are you scornful? Do you look down on other people? Are you quick with a snarky remark? Or maybe another alternative. Let your speech always be grace seasoned with salt that you might have an answer for everyone. Oh, boy. <laughs> Pretty convicting stuff. Jesus rode that balance. Obviously, he was aware of what was going on politically, or he wanted to paint this picture straight out of the annals of uh, Herod Archelaus. But notice he uses this very secular set of circumstances to paint a picture of a very important spiritual point. We are told a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little and have authority over ten cities. And a second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here's your mina, which I've kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you're an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him. And give it to him who has ten minas. But I said to him, Master, he has ten minas, like he's already got ten minas. For I say to you that everyone who has will be given. And for him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Whoa! What's going on here? Well, first of all, Understand something. A mina is an interesting amount of money. It's just shy of one pound of silver. That's what a mina was. It was the rough equivalent of what the average working guy would make for three months' worth of income. I guess in our day and age, although the way inflation's going, uh, this figure will be different tomorrow than it is today, but it's roughly about $10,000. 
that this ruler gave to each of these individuals. Now, notice something. They all got the same amount of money. There is a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25 called the parable of the talents, where each servant is given a different amount of money and then held accountable for what they do with it. This is different than that, and it's different in a significant way. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, the parable of the minas here, it's just sort of a riff on the parable of the talents. And, you know, it, it just the, the, the point is, you know, that different people have different giftednesses and, you know, and that God is somehow going to hold us accountable for how we use those areas. Now, you miss the point if you go down that road. It's a very different parable than the parable of the talents. In this significant way, catch this, everybody in this parable, got the same amount of money, same amount of resource. It was what they did with that same amount of money and resource that told the tale. Now, follow me on this, because this is really significant spiritually. <clears throat> there are those that I've run into who say, well, you know, I, you know, I really just don't do much for the kingdom of God. I'm just not really all that gifted. And if God wanted me to do more for the kingdom of God, he would give me more giftedness, you know. And, you know, these people that have the gift of gab or the, the ability to speak or crackerjack administrators or real estate moguls, they're the ones who build the kingdom of God. It's just not me. You know, I'm just a little me over here. Well, a couple things. First of all, according to this, we all get from our good king, now there's a contrast between a bad king like Archelaus and a good king here, the same resource to invest. We all get, and it's interesting how this amount of silver is just under one pound. You know, we, we hear about the British currency, a pound sterling. That's where they get this from. That's how they set up their economy based upon this idea of a mina right here. We all get spiritual riches on the same level from God. We all get the same spiritual resource to be able to invest. Now, what do I mean by that? All of us, understand this, as believers in Jesus, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus, have been given by God two priceless, precious things. Number one, you've been given the priceless, precious Word of God. You remember what Psalm 19 says about God's truth? It's more precious than silver or gold. It is more valuable than diamonds. Proverbs chapter 3 says, Nothing you desire can compare with God's wisdom. All of us as believers in Jesus have been given the Word of God. Secondly, all of us as God's people, no matter who you are, have been given the power of God's Spirit to apply the Word of God for one great mission in this world, one great task that you and I have been entrusted to by our great King. What is it? Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. What does it say? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and what? You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the innermost parts of the earth. Three things that we've all got going for us as believers. Number one, we all have God's word, his revelation. 
Number two, we all have the empowering work of the Holy Spirit to apply and put into action God's word and his truth. And number three, we all have the same purpose. We all have the same calling. God has called you to be a witness. Exhibit A in this lost and dying world of the change that Jesus Christ can make within a human life. We should be about the business through the power of God's Spirit of continually running into people and having them say, why are you so different? Why, why aren't you so snarky? Everybody else is snarky these days. Why is it that you aren't walking in fear when everybody I know is afraid to go out of their house because uh, of this or that or the, the next great thing that is going to come down the line and scare people to death? Why aren't you walking in fear like everybody else? Why do you care about people that seemingly don't care about you? Why aren't you reactive like everybody else and counting offenses and being bitter and expecting people to somehow meet your needs like everybody else does? Why are you so different? The minute you hear that, you know you're investing your mina. You're investing it well. Now notice, <laughs> this king didn't need these guys to do investments for him. He, he was very well off to start with, right? So why does he invest this money with these individuals? One reason, character. What they did with this resource would reveal the quality of their character. And they would be rewarded accordingly. One guy who wanted to be faithful to his master bought and sold and brought back a tenfold reward, a tenfold return on what he was given. That's pretty awesome. Second guy, Fivefold. I've read some comments. Oh well, this other guy only brought back fivefold on his return. I don't know about you, but if I ran into a financial investor who could guarantee me a five hundred percent return on my money, sign me up. Right? This guy did a great job. The only one who's called the task is who? The one who didn't invest. The one that just took the money and, in a sense, just wrapped it up in a handkerchief. And buried it and said, here's your money back. Why do you do that? May I suggest to you the same reason why a lot of Christians are fruitless in this life. They didn't know the character of their master. They misinterpreted the character of the person they were serving. <laughs> Notice he says, you're an austere man. Austere is kind of a polite way of saying, you're really harsh. You're really mean. You take advantage of other people. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Have you ever gone through a time in your life where that kind of mentality has crossed your, maybe the, not the front of your mind, hopefully, but maybe the back of your mind about God? You know, there's a phenomenon out there called exvangelicals. You ever heard of exvangelicals? There are people who claim to be believers in Jesus at one point. They're not walking with Jesus anymore. Why? Because God let them down. Oh, I put my faith in God, and God was supposed to bring me this perfect spouse who was going to meet all my needs, and no, my, my marriage blew up. God doesn't love me. I can't trust God. Oh, wait a minute. I thought God was supposed to make me wealthy, and here I am still scraping on by. I can't trust God. Man, I thought God was going to bless me, so I wouldn't have to worry about getting the latest bug that comes down the line. And here I am sick. I can't trust God. 
if God really loved me, things would be different, man. <laughs> You're an austere man. You're severe. You can't be trusted. Oh, I know you're thinking, oh, man, you're those ex-evangelicals, you know. I, I, I'm certainly not one of Oh, careful. Have you ever found yourself thinking this? Because if you do, you're on your way to becoming an ex-evangelical, and I want to spare you that. Have you ever found yourself thinking this? Wow, I've really been blessed lately. Man, the Lord, he, he's given me exceedingly abundantly beyond anything I could ever ask or think. I can hardly believe it. You know, I saw this healing over here, and I, I, I you know, this financial return came in over here, and, and then, and, you know, it's just, I just seems like every time I turn around, it's like God's winking at me saying, here you go, kid. And this thought crosses your mind. It's too good to be true. God set me up. I just know it. <sighs> the things can't be this good. He's going to pull the rug right out from under me. You ever been in a place where you can't even enjoy your blessings because you're worried about them being taken away tomorrow? You're an austere man, God. I don't know if I can trust you. The difference between the fruitful and the fruitless, the difference between faith and fear. And I guarantee you, one of those or the other is going to be running your life at any given moment. You can't trust God and decide not to trust God at the same moment. It's going to be one or the other. The key to a fruitful Christian life, and, and, and believe me, it's not just something that is going to be a blessing for you in the here and now, but it's also going to be a blessing for you in the hereafter is understanding the simple truth we see in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 17. It says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. People ask the question, Scott, why are you in the ministry? There's got to be easier ways to make a living. And, and I thoroughly agree with you. It was J. Oswald Sanders in his book, Spiritual Leadership, who said this, if you feel like you're called to the ministry and you can do anything else with your life, do it. Seriously. Yeah, you, there was, it was not for no purpose that your mama told you, whatever you do in polite company, don't talk about politics and religion. Well, we're 0 for 2 on this message, right? And I'll get letters. You know, I get stopped. People say, oh, dare you say this about that? Okay, well, great. Here's the circular file over here. I'll give you a comment that due attention it deserves. But here's the deal. Why serve the Lord? Easier just to go with the flow, right? Easier just to kind of keep a low profile and, and just kind of do things I would have done anyway and, and maybe even sprinkle some spiritual stuff on the top of it. But, but really serving the Lord, you know, why would you do that? There's only one motive that will sustain you. And that is not achieving the admiration and acceptance of people in spiritual leadership. There's only one thing that will motivate you to the very end, and that is you love Jesus because he first loved you. 
in a light of how much he loved you, the least you can do with your life is to share with others the good things he's done for you. There is no greater advertisement than a satisfied customer. Does Jesus satisfy you? Does having his grace and his love in your life thrill you and, and, and excite you? I can't believe what people get thrilled and excited about in this world. You know, the, the NFL playoffs are coming up and people are all excited and psyched about this and that and the other. And yeah, great, you know, knock yourselves out. But do you remember who won the playoffs five years ago? I don't. But I do remember those wonderful times where God's used me. I do remember those times where that divine appointment happens, and I'm just like, you want me to share with this person right here because they're just sitting there saying, gee, I wish somebody could tell me how to get saved. Oh, well, okay, yo, here we go. There's nothing more thrilling than seeing the Lord use your life to change somebody's life forever. But the only way you're going to get in that game starts with how you look at God. Is he austere? Is he severe? Is he going to pull the rug out from underneath you? Or do you realize that Jesus died for you and that he rose from the dead so that you could have eternal life? And if he's done that, then the heavy lifting on everything else is all taken care of. And I can't explain the ups and downs and the here's and there's and, you know, why individuals die at a certain time or why other people seem to hang on forever. I can't explain any of that to you. The only thing I know is when we see the Lord face to face, we're going to say he has done all things well. And that's worth living for. That's worth investing in. Distractions? Oh, yeah, they're out there. And and they've they've got your name on it. You know, again, as we mentioned, Satan's not going to show up smelling like sulfur and say, I'm going to lead you astray over here. But he will try to distract What's your distraction? What gets your mind off the things of God? Is it being on the internet too much? Cut it back, man. Maybe even cut it out. You can't handle it for a while. Is your distraction, say, the approval of other people? Is your distraction trying to be somebody in this world and, and, and trying to canvas the approvals and the attaboys of the people that are so... The, the list goes on and on. There's only one thing worth living for. There's one life, the old saying goes. It'll soon be passed. But only what's done in Christ will last. And what's implicit in this parable is this. There's going to be incredible rewards for simple faithfulness that await us in heavenly glory. There's going to be some people who make it by the skin of their chinny-chin-chin because they didn't understand who God really was. And then there's going to be people that God is going to say, I saw your character in the there and then, and I am going to reward you with fruitfulness and ministry and opportunities to serve me in eternity that are going to absolutely blow your mind. Too good to miss. Too good to miss. Lord, thank you so much for this powerful parable. And Lord, just like the disciples, forgive us for pretty much having made up in our own minds what we think you need to be doing in our lives. God, I pray that you would give us the ability to simply trust in you, to know that you're good and that your mercies endure forever. And that, Lord, you are going to reward us for simple faithfulness to you. 
not necessarily effectiveness, but faithfulness. And, and you look on the heart. Lord, I thank you that we all have these opportunities to be used by you. I pray that you would renew within us that simple commitment to say to you before our feet hit the carpet in the morning, Lord, what are you up to today? I want to be part of it. Give me those divine appointments. Help me to receive your word, but even more importantly, relate it and to multiply the blessings that you have given to me simply by giving them away to other people. Lord, there's only two things we can touch in this world that will last forever, the word of God and people. I pray that we would be simple enough and focused enough to make that our goal, our purpose, our reason for drawing another breath. Thank you, Lord, for the simplicity of following you and falling in love with you. Cause us to fall in love with you all over again. And may that, that love relationship be an incredible witness in this world by your word and the power and work of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.